welcome back to the Just Interesting People podcast. My name is Rosie. I'm here with my co-host and husband Jeremy, and today we are talking to Millie. Millie is a coach that I met a couple of years ago when I did a self-development program. Her life wasn't always easy. How, when she was a child, her mother suffered from mental illnesses, and her brother was a sociopath. Her struggles turned into addiction in her teen years and early adulthood. But eventually, when she got sober in her mid-twenties, she started to help other people. And since then, she dedicated her life to that. Listen to this powerful episode to learn how she uses her struggle and very difficult past to now help other people live the dream life. Millie, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited about this episode. And I'm going to share how we met because... Your first impression is going to be recorded in my brain for my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> you traumatize me. I know. I hear that so often. Not my intention. I know. Um, I did gratitude training in 2019-2020. And you were the main coach trainer for the second part of the training. And I'm not going to get into the detail of the thing, but the first time I met you was, I think it was a, I don't know, Wednesday, whatever, it doesn't matter. On the first day, we got into the room, I don't know, 50, 60 of us probably, and nothing happened. There's a mic in the middle, so we start going to the mic and say, hey, my name is blah, 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 I come from here, and I'm here to work on, you know, some personal things, whatever. And people just introduce themselves, oh, cool, right, it's my turn, hey, I'm Jeremy, blah, 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 blah. And I'm walking back to my seat and I hear a voice somewhere. Jeremy, wait, stay here. Oh, God. And I look around the room and I see you in the back. And I'm like, why me? Why the <laughs> fuck did she pick me? <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I stayed there for about 20 minutes and you... I felt at the moment you basically destroyed me. <laughs> in some ways I did. <laughs> in some way you did. Um... But you know what? I'd, just when that happened, I hated you, honestly. I was like, God damn, I hate this person. And then at the end, I was like, I'm so grateful that it happened to me because I had to let go of my guard, of my shield, of everything within the first 20 minutes. Done. Here I am. Here I am crying after 20 minutes. Everyone knows what's going on. I don't have anything to hide anymore. There's no bullshit anymore. I might as well enjoy the weekend and take full advantage of it. Because that's it. I've been exposed. <laughs> you know, I can't hide anymore. So in a sense, I was really grateful. Cause I think my experience of the weekend without that might have been different because maybe I would have been able to sneak in a little bit easier. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you definitely didn't get to hide. And, that, and, and I want to say this because I know most, you're supposed to hate me in the first couple of days. You're not supposed to like me. So that's good news. Um, and if I, if, if I don't pick people based on any one thing to start with. So the mm. training starts off that way. I don't pick someone and say, I'm going to, you know, the white male, that's what, or the person who says this. It's something intuitively that I know the person is willing to go there. Mm. So like, it's really a compliment that I, we call it go in on you, that <laughs> I went, went in on you first, because what it meant was that you had a mustard seed of an opening to be, to, um, get vulnerable. Hmm. 
and I saw it in you, or I heard it in your voice, or something about you told me that you were willing and open to go go deep, quick, because that that training goes from like zero to sixty in a second. There is no there's no time in that training yeah. to sit around and it's be like, up. I'm gonna wait for somebody to say the right thing and then I'll jump in. It doesn't have that kind of feel for it, which is why I love it. So if I if I selected you for whatever reason, it was again a compliment that you. I sense that you were there for a purpose that I can dig into quickly. And based on results, I was right because look, you have this amazing podcast. You're traveling. So good job, Millie. One of one of your one of your students, your fellow students, your cohorts said that he thought my name was Maleficent for the first whole day. He couldn't even read my name tag to say Millicent. He could. Not like bring himself to get it. it. Took him a day to read it. I was like, hmm, hmm. The lovable witch. Nobody understands. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting. Uh, yeah. Before we dive into like your, your personal story, how? I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess it's practice, but it is interesting because outside of the training and stuff, like you are a really smiley, kind nice person and everything but you have to put this cap for a few days of like literally like playing the bad one and and being mean and and really direct and punchy and not nice and stuff like how how do you feel about like switching personalities like that (laughs) so it's so one of the things i think that really supports me with that is that i always create an intention of what i want to have happen in somebody's life so i remind myself that it's not about being liked or making people comfortable it's Mm. about having them live the life of their dreams and so the first couple of days i'm very interruptive you know like i'm interrupting we like to say your bs i interrupt that stuff that i was being careful not to cuss because you know me i'm a cusser oh Oh, yeah it's fine yeah it's a podcast i interrupt your bullshit uh and so sometimes that takes you know, sometimes it takes a hammer to interrupt yeah. someone's bullshit because they've been operating from this egoic, uh, self-centered, fearful, whatever it is for that person. They've been operating from that for so long that if I came in kind and gentle, it would just be one more person. Now, there might be a, a situation where there's somebody who kind and gentle would be more interruptive than yelling at them. When I worked with adolescents, uh, boys specifically, when I worked with them in uh, juvenile detention centers, which was one of my very first jobs in social work, um, being gentle was actually more powerful than yelling at them. I could yell at them the day as long and they would, if I brought a tear to my eye, they'd all stop and be like, she's crying. Why is she crying? What's happening? <laughs> and so it's really about being outward focused and asking what wants to happen here for that person that you're trying to serve. And it, it helps. And I have fun with it. You know, like it, it's, it's very nerve wracking at first. Like that first mm-hmm. day, I I feel like my stomach gets all naughty and I, I, I get sweaty and my tongue swells up. And I think, why did I do this to myself? Why didn't I find a simpler <laughs> career? I mean, I do all that whole thing. And then I, then, I, then I start thinking about the people and what I want them to have happen. And as soon as I do that, all of a sudden it's like I forget myself and then whatever is needed just shows up. And I know that sounds kind of weird. I don't have any words for it. So that's mm-hmm. the best way to describe it. Yeah, I think it's it's just worth it. It's it's worth to have those people like hating you for a few days and everything because you know that at the end they're gonna thank me because hopefully if I do a great job and if they do the the part of the job, they should get out of here 
with a better vision of life and everything. So it's it's worth the the pain for it's 48 worth, hours or whatever. It's the, yeah, it's like the first 48 <clears throat> hours or so. It's definitely now. Yeah. There's occasionally where people still. But I had a guy who said he still hates me two years later. <laughs> He still is like, I hate you two years later. I think you're a terrible human being. And I was like, all right, well, you know what? Like, please, please do not give me any more energy. Like, you deserve peace. And if the thought of me does not give you peace, like, block Aww. me, erase me, like, go do whatever work you need to do. It saddens, it saddens mm -hmm. me that that would still, someone would carry that for so long, mm -hmm. especially if they've completed knowing that what we were trying yeah. to create, like, what I'm trying to create in the world doesn't always look like nice. Yeah, but it's interesting what you said about the juvenile center that yeah, you need to adjust your behavior to your audience. Uh, and, and even without even going to something that e extreme, maybe like, I feel like, like, I don't know if that would work with you. Like, you, like we are really different. Oh, I yeah. need I need to be shouted. I need to get kicking a butt to respond. Like that works really well with me personally. Like that's really efficient to get things out of me. When I think like if you shout to Rosie, she's just going to, I would just cry. Slop on the floor and cry for... Oh, yeah. I hate being shouted out or being told off. And then I'd be like, get off the floor, girl. Get up. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm staying here forever. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you would just, you just would know. Once you understand, for, let me rephrase it, once I understand what people desire, like what they really want out of life, what is a life with no regrets, what do they dream of, once I understand that to a certain extent, and I don't know that I ever fully understand what people want because most people, we can't verbalize what we really want. <laughs> we, we, get, we put words to something that is non-describable in my opinion to help yeah. people yeah. understand and get it. But once I get an understanding of that to the level I, that I think that I can be in service to you, then accessing what's needed to have you see your greatest self becomes like this intuitive dance that you're in. It's not a... I'm going to apply this here and that there. There might be certain languaging I use to land, like we call it landing a distinction or to, to have people understand what mm -hmm. I'm trying to convey to them. But there's no rhyme or reason of why I say what I say when I do, other than that's what's what I experience is needed for that person to break through. Mm. So mm. I might try yelling at Rosie and then after it doesn't work, I'll shift into something that would work and I'll keep shifting until I find what works. And that goes back to my commitment to having people break through and not necessarily like me. You liking me, it's not really that important. You breaking mm. through is really important. That takes a lot of knowledge though, to have lots of different things in your back pocket that you can pull out depending on what tools. you, yeah. yeah, lots of tools <laughs> and lots of like, knowledge and information so how did you gain all of that knowledge where did this all start well so it's funny because i think oh, when did it all start when did it all start well i was born into a family of of people who were addicted so i was mm. born in this uh and this is the i call it the upside of of like traumatic childhood <laughs> my mother had significant mil mental illness and um and lots of personality disorders uh, and so she was not exactly able to care for us in the way that would be uh, beneficial to a healthy childhood. And mm -hmm. I had a brother who was literally like clinically a sociopath. He, you know, hurt animals, attempted to kill people. Uh, you know, he was a, like clinically, he, you know, burnt down neighbor's yards kind of sociopath. Wow. He was, it wasn't like, oh, I hated my brother. I'm actually yeah, loved, yeah. I actually loved him. <laughs> However, being in a household with a borderline personality disorder and a social, someone who like, had no remorse or regret only if they got caught, uh, mm. I learned how to assess every situation. Like at a really young age, I'd walk in the room and see who I was dealing with. 
and I would adjust myself for safety reasons to whatever personality was showing up within them. And, you know, we're talking about multiple faces to the same human being. And yeah, you I, had to survive. It was total survival. It was a total survival. And it probably wasn't until I got, you know, a little bit older that I realized that survival technique, those tools of like assessing a person, reading their, their, their body language, listening to what they're saying, what they're not saying, and then adjusting me to fit that mm. container mm -hmm. was a gift. I always thought it was like, oh, it's a bad thing because now I'm a chameleon. I take the shape of whatever glass I'm in. I have no, I have no whatever. And it didn't serve me because I would do whatever was needed, like in the time. And I had, I had no sense of groundedness. And then I got clear on what I wanted to create in the world. And once mm -hmm. I started understanding what I wanted to have happen in my world, then that same survival tool became a tool to, yeah. to, to create whatever I want to create. Mm -hmm. And people could say, well, it's like, you know, it's like, well, who are you? And it's like, well, I mean, I know who I am, but who am I to other people? is really mm -hmm. the question I want to ask myself because well, mm -hmm. I only know who I am in relationship with other people. Mm. So if does that make sense? So like, I think yeah. that, I think we all carry that from our childhood. We just don't always see it as a gift. Sometimes we see it as a fault or a bad thing. It's that shift that occurs. Same gifts that got me, got me where I'm at are the same things that are the same things that had me survive can have me thrive if I change the intention behind them. Mm. Was it, complicated when you were younger, uh, a child and teenager, though, to um, find your authentic self, maybe? Because because you had to adjust and have plenty of different facets. Uh, you know, maybe you, I, I can imagine that you might struggle to actually, who am, who am I? Which one is a real me? Uh, yeah, you know, 100%. And I and one of the things that I think it led to is I had a significant drinking and drug problem because I didn't, I didn't know who I was. I didn't, I didn't have any deep sense of like, who am I as Millicent? I was like, who am I in relationship to my mother? Who am I to my brother? Who am I to my, you know, to my father? Like the, the that was, and it was confusing because or I a lot of my identity came from my group of friends that I was hanging out with or the boy I was dating or all of that stuff and so I began to find that I actually identified really well with alcoholism and drug addiction it was just such a great like I, I finally the first time I remember using and drinking I was like man I feel like alive and comfortable in my skin for mm -hmm. the first time that I ever could remember It was like, it was like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is who I am. This is something I can like, this is, this works, you know? And I spent, mm -hmm. a, you know, like the next 10 years trying to maintain that so that I could have a life and continue to maintain this party girl, you know, out of the box, crazy, you know, because that was like my reputation was party girl, crazy, uh, free spirit. Like, how could I maintain that and still you know, have a husband and children and you know, it didn't, it just didn't, it didn't line yeah. up. Mm -hmm. And so literally I had like a breakdown, like a, like a significant breakdown. And at the time I thought it was like the worst thing ever today. It was like, it was the catalyst for a spiritual awakening. Wow. Do you think, so you, you said that you kind of felt the most alive when you were drinking or, or taking substances, but you think it's because 
usually when we when we drink we tend to let our guards down a bit and and relax and maybe you didn't worry that much about oh i need to act this way because of this person now uh like the the alcohol helps you to just chill and i don't know be more yourself without trying to play someone else yeah it shut off the itty bitty shitty committee in my brain that told me that i need like that was constantly giving me like be this way so (laughs) literally like i had like a story it's like all right you have to do this so that he doesn't doesn't hurt you like physically like you know like try to kill you you know Mm -hmm. what i mean uh or be this way so she doesn't blow up so i had these like i like like i was so sensitive to everybody's moods and emotions and thoughts and and energies that when i drank it was like i didn't none of that stuff Mm -hmm. affected me anymore and i could just be or at least i thought i was being i wasn't actually being but i felt like i was being and um you know, like I said, I think it probably saved me on some level, but then it, that what saves you sometimes <laughs> tries to kill you later, <laughs> which it absolutely did try to kill me, <laughs> you know, like a country Western song. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, not that I, you, you are the expert on addiction and recovery. And so I, I know very little about it, but yeah, I feel from interviews that we did and everything, it always starts to cover a pain or to cover or numb or shut down something and it feels good for a while and and eventually that stops and and then you kind of go down. Yeah, if it still worked, I'd still be doing it probably. <laughs> like ultimately if it was still working, it yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't have had any reason to stop the problem or solution, whichever way you want to look at it was no matter how much I put in my body, it just never, I never could get that feeling of numbness anymore. I couldn't get that release from the pressure in my head that told me like, do this, don't do this, do this. I could not, that freedom was gone. And then it was just that it was drunkenness and thoughts. (laughs) And so like, I literally, it's like having a hangover before you quit drinking. Like who would, you know, like if, if, if you got a hangover from drink one, you wouldn't keep drinking. Mm. I never felt a release in the last couple of years. So what was the point in continuing? So when, when and what was the trigger for you to, to stop this path? Um, well, I had children. I got married because I thought I was supposed to. I was, you know, I'm supposed to get married. I'm supposed to have children. And I love my children. I love, love, love them. You know, and I would, you know, I, you know me, like you've met me before. I'd fight a bear. You know, I would, I would, I would kill someone if they hurt them. But I found myself drinking and driving with them in the car. And I just got so, like, I, I just saw myself, you know, and I was so depressed. And I was, I, I hated every part of my being. No amount of alcohol and drugs made me feel better. Nothing made me feel better. And I began to, weirdly enough, pray to a candle in my bathroom. <laughs> Why I don't know, but for me, God was in this candle and I lit it every day and I prayed to be removed of my burdens. I didn't think that it was going to be like, you know, you're going to stop drinking. And I thought it was going to be like a white light and all this stuff, you know, how you, we imagine Mm -hmm. awakening to be. What ended up happening was I went out for a bender with some friends and a friend of mine came to me in a bathroom was literally like after two days of like, you know, being a garbage can of alcohol and drugs. Um, she's like, do you want to try this? It's mescaline. And I was like, I don't even know what mescaline is, but sure, let's snort this off of a toilet seat of a VIP room of a nightclub. That sounds great at four in the morning. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> so as you can imagine what happened next, uh, I literally had, uh, I, I guess it would be what we would call an outer body experience. I felt myself dying, like physically. I felt uh, like my heart was trying to stop, which could have possibly been because I had done a lot of mm. cocaine and, mm. and obviously other hallucinogens and alcohol. So who knows what was happening inside my body, but I felt myself out of my body and I saw myself. And so ironically, what I saw myself was I was in bed with my drug dealer and his, my gay drug dealer and his boyfriend and his boyfriend's boyfriend, we were watching gay porn on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. because that's what all little league moms do. Um, and I literally like, I literally like, you know, I have like children and I'm married. And I'm live. This is what I'm doing. And I saw myself and I was like, it wasn't, it wasn't like a white light or this, you know, like God moment, mm -hmm. like people do. It was literally the darkest thing I've ever seen or felt. And I haven't felt it since. And I felt myself just wanting to live for the first time in a long time. I really heard myself saying, I want to live. I, I want to live. And you know, I just like popped up, like I popped up and like all of those things I had been doing for my body, like it was like I was completely raw, feeling everything all at once. I, I, my consciousness was like, you know, I mean, like, I don't know if you guys ever done hallucinogenics like masculine or anything like that. I've not done them since. <laughs> People always ask me, well, have you ever considered like, you know, doing a ceremony in like Peru or something? I'm like, nah, I had a one. I'm good. I'm good. Enough. <laughs> but the desire to drink and drug was lifted on that day. I haven't mm -hmm. had a desire to come back. Now, I would like to say that it was like, oh, everything was hunky door. I actually ended up having to spend a little time in an outpatient psychiatric unit uh, for 21 days when they checked me in and checked me out. And I had to, you know, do some work on the back end. It wasn't like mm -hmm. a, you know, it was some stuff that came about mm -hmm. and I ended up doing some more spiritual work and 12-step work and all kinds of work on myself. Um, but that was definitely, I like to call it my accidental awakening. <laughs> I, literally, I had no intentions of awakening. I just didn't want to be miserable anymore. And sometimes when you're in that space, I think things are introduced. And that's why, I, I mean, I don't, there's so many ways to recover. I can't tell you mm. what your way is going to be. But from that point on, I became a seeker. Like from that day, I became a seeker. And that's really the catalyst that started all of it. In, in terms of career, what were you doing at this stage in your life? Bartending. I was, I was, I was bartending and I was like the lead bartender. So like I closed okay. the bar, you know, I still ran stuff. I was still controlling and, you know, stuff. But I was, so imagine having that experience then going back to the bar. I did it for a few months and then I was like, I don't know that I'm going to drink again because I feel like this has been lifted, but I don't think that I am serving humanity yeah. and I don't know that I can be fully human and watch people lives just fall apart you know they could literally watch people come in and their lives fall apart in this bar that i was and i don't have a problem with alcohol i just think that there's some lifestyle things that get in the way for people and, and i watched and i couldn't handle it anymore so then i went back to school and got my degree in psychology and sociology did your husband know that you were drinking and using at the time yeah 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 he um so he was amazing right but if you know anything about drugs and alcohol a lot of times the people we pick are great enablers mm, so we okay. pick we pick people who can support us in aiding us in our drug use even though we don't consciously do it we, we it's like laws of attraction we attract to us people and so i tracked to myself an amazing man who liked to save people he literally was mm. a police officer he literally liked to save people as a police officer it wasn't like a you know so being married to a police officer aided me in never getting a DWI or getting in any legal scrapes, even though I definitely was pulled over. Um, 
and he was so good at taking he was much old, a little bit older than me he was great at taking care of the household so i mm. it, it literally was like a like a fourth child to him you know mm. and so i think he wanted me to do something about my drinking but he wanted it to be in the rules and the things that he saw not in maybe reality of what needed mm -hmm. to happen so we ended up divorcing um okay. two years into my recovery okay and did your kids know that you were going through all this do they still yeah. know did well, they, they know now, they know now, but when they were, mm -hmm. the oldest was 10 and the youngest was a year and a half old when I got sober. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they have vague memories of things that happened, but they don't have like, they don't have like conscious memories yeah. of it. They, they, you know, remember certain silly things that happened and things that, uh, probably looking back now like hindsight now that they're close to 30 they're like hmm, i remember this mom being this way now that they've had their own experiences <laughs> with drugs and alcohol i'm sure they're mm. just like hmm. but they didn't they didn't really a lot of people didn't know that i had a drinking and drug problem because mm. i was a a week i worked in a bar so nobody really questioned how much i drank yeah. Yeah. i had no dwis i didn't i couldn't drink around family the one time i did i was so fallen down drunk they all thought it was funny so i just i just white knuckled it from then on I, if i was around an extended family i would do drugs that would not make me so sloppy and mm -hmm. so they never picked up on it i mean they knew something was wrong with me but they didn't know what it was and how long do you think that period was between when you started and when you sobered when you got sober i took my first drink at 14 now, mm -hmm. let me rephrase that. I had drank wine, of, you know, beer for my family and things yeah, like that. Yeah. But the first time I went out and drank on my own, like I initiated it, I was 14 mm -hmm. and I got sober at 28. So I was 14 years of running. Mm. And so when you had this awakening and you decided to change the course of your life, uh, you which for support, so you got helped and you, you, you did some work, like you said, uh, back to school. Why did you pick uh, sociology and psychology? Well, ironically, <laughs> I picked nursing, actually. I oh. wanted to be a nurse that, you know, nurses make good money. They help people. I mean, I like to call nurses, you know, professional codependents, which if you scratch an alcoholic long enough, they say you'll find a codependent underneath, right? Like, so <laughs> my first addiction was to human beings. I was addicted to human beings well before I picked up the first drink or drug based on what I've even told you about, like mm. paying attention to everybody yeah. and what they're doing and then a shuffling myself to please everyone in the room. Um, so uh, what happened though, was turns out I have a very weak stomach for blood. I couldn't, every time I'd see blood in the nursing classes, I was like, <laughs> I'd get woozy. You know, turns out I come from a family with vasal vaglia. So if I, if I see certain things or certain things happen, my blood pressure's low and I, was I passed the classes, but I was like, well, this isn't probably going to work out and farewell for me, you know? <laughs> but in the meantime, ironically, what had happened was, is I had taken all these psychology courses because I really wanted to be a psych nurse. And so, be, and so when I went into my, my, uh, counselor, they're like, you have a minor in psychology. And I was like, really? And it was, a, mm. it was associates program at a community college. And they're like, actually you could take this like one more course and you could graduate with a with a with an associate's degree in psychology and transfer to a university. And I was like, well, let's do that then. Like, let's get me out of this nursing program. I don't think this is going to work for me. I feel sick to my stomach most of the time when I'm looking at microbiology. You know, 
like there's a problem with this. So, um, and that's what happened. I transferred to a university uh, then after the following semester. So I don't want to say I didn't pick it because I definitely chose it, but it wasn't really a conscious decision. Yeah. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I want to do this. And then I was, but I was fascinated by psychology. I was fascinated by human beings and how they relate with each other. And, and sociology is like the macro of psychology is how human beings in, in a society relate with each other. So both of those just, I mean. Hmm. It's, it's funny we talk about that because yes, last night in bed <laughs> with Rosie, hmm. at least she told her, I would love one day to learn a bit more about psychology hey. and sociology because I think the way human beings interact with other people treat each other in some specific situation and based on what's going on in their life, how they treat other, I think it's so interesting. And yeah, I was speaking to, to, to Rosie last night. So. It is fascinating. I'm yeah. so fascinated by human beings and their nature and, and how they relate. And, and so I, I think everybody should take more psychology. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just, a little bit. I really wish, I was thinking the other day that police officers would benefit from having like a minor in psychology. Like if they, if they had to have a mm -hmm. four year university degree or something equivalent to, and they mm -hmm. all took psychology and sociology with this emphasis on addiction and, and mental illness. How cool would that be for our world that, because yeah. they, they are the first people that come in contact with people yeah. with mental illness. I mean, <laughs> One of my first experiences as a child that I remember, I mean, I have probably had plenty, but the ones I really remember was I had an uncle who was an outlaw and was being sought by a motorcycle gang and police officers. And we were <laughs> somehow we ended up in like this really rural area with my family and all of my brothers and sisters or my half brothers and sisters were sent to go live with their father. And I was with my mother and my biological father and um, a police came police came like I remember I was is the 70s maybe early 80s so they had on like the blue powder blue suits and they had they didn't have bulletproof rest or anything back then they had like these chains with you could tell this the police officers from their emblem mm. on their thing I was maybe four and I remember hiding between the end table and the couch and mm. they had my parents like on the porch cuffed looking for my uncle and then they were like I found something and they were so nice to me like the police officers were so kind to me and everything but think about like how many times they run into a child or somebody you know that that you know on those kind of scenes serving a warrant or whatever it may be trying to uh, aid someone else and there's these children if if I, I had a really fond memory of it. I, I mean, I didn't have a fond memory, obviously, of my parents and all of the, you know, it was scary. But at the same time, I felt like they really tried to ease me and yeah. comfort me as a small child. And I thought, man, that that was every childhood's experience of police work. Mm. How cool would that be if every yeah. child had that experience? It would change the dynamics of everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And not just with kids, to be honest. But no. <laughs> Let's just start with children and then yeah. expand it out <laughs> into the rest of the world. Yeah. Do you think the desire to pick nursing and that led to psychology? So there is a desire to help people there. Yeah? Uh, was it because you realized that, I don't know, because you went through a lot of shit previously in your life, uh, you felt that, I don't know, you, you know, a lot of people were in this situation. So maybe you could use your experience to help others. Like, was there any? 
dispense for sure. reasoning. Yeah, yeah, because I was already sober at the time, and I realized that the nursing and, and psychology specifically nursing, that there was not a lot of people who had maybe been in addiction and got sober oh, who could support okay. other people get sober. And what I didn't know back then that I kind of realized now, it's not kind of I realized, and uh, obviously this isn't a truth, it's just it makes sense to my mind that we're always in a course of learning lessons like we're always doing a coursework or we're, tr we're working through something. And I think for me, going back and working with other people was me like healing some childhood stuff. Like I never, my mother never got, my mother never got sober in any sense of the words. She never really maintained any kind of stability in her mental health. My brother, he committed suicide in prison, never created any mental health stability um and so i for me i think i was also healing them as well like there was a part mm -hmm. of me that never wanted anybody to have to experience what i experienced to include having a mother or brother or whatever so part of it was also being in service to them now that's a it sounds great but there's also some egoic part about that that makes it makes it unhealthy so there's a it's like a dance even and at the time i started it my dance was not all out focused you know what i mean like i didn't because i was unaware of what i was doing i was doing it from an automatic kind of place and it got me i don't want to say in trouble but it definitely made me um I, it, my experience of myself in that field was sometimes I was codependent with my clients when I first got into the field of addiction and I started helping people. I wouldn't give up on them. And I'm, and that's a good thing in the sense of like, they always knew they were loved, but I think I enabled them in some ways to continue on and try to control them in ways that was not healthy for them or myself and mm. led to some burnout on me and coworkers and things like that. So I think that it's, great that I did that and it was lessons I needed to learn in there and looking back on it I'm like hmm I could have probably benefited from psychiatry <laughs> for myself <laughs> a little more before I dove into yeah. psychiatry for other people you know mm -hmm. so it's just a just kind of a hindsight thing yeah I mean it's part of the process I guess anyway uh, it was definitely well, part of the process yeah it's there are some things that you need to experiment and figure figure it out on the field like you can't learn it from the textbook you need to go through it and yeah you might not take the best decisions every time or whatever but you were doing the best that you could with the tools that you had at this time and yeah i mean it's just, it's just life i think <laughs> i think that's the way it is with all human beings we do the the past yeah. could be no different the past is it can never be any different so we do the best that we can with the with the information that we have all human beings are that way we do the best with the information we're given and we go from there and i'll tell you the first thing one of my clinical directors told me was i remember you know feeling afraid and he said listen if whatever you do is out of love and care for the client there's nothing that you can do that we can't fix right yeah. it's mm. only when you're going at it for something you want to get out of it for yourself that's a problem and i remember that and i i still mm. use that today like if like we talked about like me screaming profanities at you in the first 20 minutes you met me if i do that out of care and concern for you even if I misstep and say something that's not quote unquote right or you know is inappropriate or whatever, it can it can be shifted back to the intention I want to create as long as I'm being outward focused. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. See what? Yeah. It's yeah. It's the intention behind it, and yeah, you you're not doing it to hurt the other person or whatever. It's to get something out of the situation because you know you're working towards someone. Yeah, I get it. Um, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that we're ever 
clear and clean of egoic motives. And I mean, I, I, this is my experience of myself. As long as I'm in this body during this time as Millicent, I'm probably always going to come from the ego at some point. Like there's, like I don't know that I could, I don't know that I would operate without it. Like it's what brings things into the physical world. So the fact that sometimes it still runs the show, you know, like is. I don't know if it's a fact, but my experience that it runs the show sometimes is part of the human condition. It's not a bad and wrong thing. And if I make it bad and wrong, then I'm making mankind and humankind bad and wrong. Mm. And I don't really want to do that. Yeah. From your experience, your personal experience, and also everything you've learned through the years of studying and, and coaching people and everything, why do you think as human being, we kind of have to hit rock bottom or to have some big shit happening in our life to wake up and switch gears towards what we actually care about or whatever why do we why can't we just do it without <laughs> going into this dark place uh, whatever dark place is i think it's the human condition we we typically seek out comfort And comfort is what most human beings operate from. Like I've, I want to be comfortable. And because I want to be comfortable, I create a world of comfort around me. And I know it seems weird that someone say, well, how could shooting heroin be comfortable? Well, for some people it is. And, and who are we to judge that? Like you can't really create a bottom for another human being. So because we are, in my experience, we're very disconnected from ourselves, like our authentic selves. Um, and we are unaware that we're disconnected. We think that we know who we are when we, when I say, well, I'm a mom, um, I'm a wife, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a, you know, I, you know, I'm a, even, you know, I'm a, I'm a college graduate, whatever I say about myself, I make that my identity. It's comfortable. Being a heroin addict is comfortable too. So until it becomes uncomfortable being in that, you're, we rarely are going to do anything different, not because we're bad, but because it's, the human condition yeah. it takes mm -hmm. uncomfortability to move us pain is a great motivator uh, i hope it's not always a great motivator you know faith is not a great motivator because we it's not tangible it doesn't we don't really feel it as we're yeah. pain that's why in the you know in the training you were in we create a little pain for you in the first couple of days so that you can get uncomfortable in in the way you've been operating up into that point so that you'll be willing to look at how your operating system's working where you're coming from and does it serve what you actually want so most people shift mm -hmm. or change when they've crossed their own moral boundaries when they've said that there's something like for me my moral boundary was you know driving drunk with my kids in the car That was the moral boundary that once I crossed it, I couldn't live with myself anymore. I either had to go all out, leave them, and become a full-time alcoholic, or kill myself or get sober. Those were the options I could only—the only options I could think of in my in my mm. pea brain at the time. I didn't. I, there was no other options available to me at the time, mm. even though there was infinite amount. I those were the only ones I could see. So as human beings, so we we limit ourselves by these options that we can see and possibilities. And we say, well, these are the options available to me. We don't realize that there's infinite amount of ability to do anything at any given time. Because anytime I say that, people go, like, I can look at your faces. You're like, I'm kind of checking out right now because I'm not really sure what she's saying, right? Because a finite mind cannot understand an infinite possibility. Mm -hmm. 
think about that for a minute because our we are finite we have to put words to describe something that's undescribable we need to have things make sense to us before we can take action that's why people wait until something really bad happens to take action because their mind won't allow them to see past what they can see in front of them yeah and i i that's true for a lot of things in life we no just like a random example that come to my mind is uh, you know for example like in terms of like push professional life work we graduate from something so we are like we, we see that okay i can only do those jobs because i graduated on that so i'm limited to those 10 jobs and we don't see everything else we think everything else is out of reach because we don't have the paper saying got a degree or whatever and the world is a massive place there's a lot of things we can do there's so much opportunities in the world to live a happy life and make enough money to have whatever you need in life and to actually wake up every day with a smile feeling a sense of fulfillment and everything because what you're going to be doing is going to be something that makes you happy and help serve others whatever it is but we tend to be really restricted by the norm of society by the pressure of the social environment we are in parents friends and all that that we have to stick with i don't know this list of 10 job or whatever it is and yeah we don't see the infinity of things that actually we can do in this world and so many people get trapped into this path this finite space there and they don't look outside of the box and and too often live a miserable life for years and have regrets on the deathbed honestly yeah i've been at deathbeds of a few people you know my bonus father my grandfather my mother my, my grandmother and none of them were like oh uh <laughs> i wish i you know had i'm so happy that i did everything exactly the way i wanted to every one of them had something that they like if i could go back i would do this differently and i and i agree i would say that i wouldn't say people are trapped they're trapped because they they don't know that there's anything else but they're actually not trapped they're mm. choosing it and they're creating a world around it because it's comfortable and getting outside of that can be frightening like the idea that you can do anything like anything at any given time it's overwhelming is overwhelming <laughs> so if we can narrow the choices down to 10 options then we can be like, all right, now I know what I want to do and I can take actions to, to make it happen and create a strategy. They don't realize, I don't, most human beings, myself included, prior to certain things in my life, didn't realize that I was the generative force behind everything that was happening to me. I really thought everything was happening to me. I didn't realize that I was creating all of this world around me and therefore at any time I could shift it to be different if I wanted it to be. And then once I got that, there are times when it, like an existential crisis where it's like, well, what's the point anyway? Like, why, why am I doing any of this if it's always going to be, you know, like if nothing's going to change and it's all of this. And then, and then you check back in and you go, it goes back to humankind. Like what I want to generate within human beings and animals and planet, you know, they're all connected in my mind. But is that making sense to you guys? What I'm yeah. saying? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 100%. We're getting all philosophical here. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like per personally doing the training and we, we're going to talk about the, the work you do now and, and coaching people and everything. But yeah, doing this, this gratitude training was 
life-changing honestly because it yes yeah, suddenly something switched and i suddenly saw the world so differently in terms of how much i can do how much i'm capable of doing by myself um all the bullshit stories slash excuses that i've been making up um and yeah like when you realize all those things when you're self-aware of it it's not like at the end of the training you become this perfect human being it's it's, it's, it's a lifelong (laughs) journey but you're aware of a lot of things and now you can work on them on your own um yeah just the fact to realize that actually like all those bullshit limitation excuses stories that we have or just excuses and when you can see that something switch and and then you can work towards whatever it is that you want to achieve yeah, that's the whole point of the, the of the trainings especially the advanced part which is what you were in with me is that you can now make your ego wrong about the way it has things it doesn't mean you're making your ego bad you just make it wrong about its limiting you know think about the ego it's created in order to keep us safe it, you know you guys lived in miami i live in i lived in miami like ego is important so that we don't run in traffic right like i need to look both ways the ego reminds me of the physical world to look both ways before i cross the street especially in miami right? <laughs> <laughs> those of you guys who are not from miami you don't know but trust me you want to walk look both ways <laughs> So the, what the problem that has, and I talked about this, is the survival skills that keep us alive will later on stop us from growing. So the ego, which, you know, like as a child came in to protect me from this, this experience of childhood that was traumatic, mm. bring that all the way up into adulthood. And if I don't trust people, if I think that I, my voice doesn't matter that I'm con- like people actually want to kill me, <laughs> you know, like, like, I can't, like, I can't say what I can't let my light shine, because somebody's gonna feel like it's gonna make them upset. And they like, literally will hurt me physically, then imagine mm. how I meant my life is going to be my existence of life is wrapped around these conversations that developed when I was like three and four and five. So mm. the trainings don't tell you that you have to do anything different. They point to a possibility that the ego is mm. wrong about the way it has it and has you explore other possibilities. It's just a yeah. pointer. Ultimately, people, yeah, it's a lifelong work. It's not like you come out of there and you're like, oh, some people think they do, and they create a lot of havoc in their life when they do. Most of us came out and go, okay, well, what's next? The, the, now the door's been opened a little bit. How do I swing the door further and get through the threshold? <laughs> because I don't even think when I finished the third level, I was like, the door was kind of open and I hadn't stepped across the threshold. Now I'm at the doorway and I've peeked <laughs> in and looked both ways, right? <laughs> like I can, I can see the, what's on side of the other, in the other room, right? <laughs> but, yeah. but I wouldn't even say trainers have, are, nobody, not, we all operate from an operating system. Our operating system might have been updated but it's still an operating mm. system, mm. right? So yeah. I, it helps to keep us right-sized. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of a friend that is a life coach. And yeah, he always tells us, like, it's not because I'm coaching people that I have everything in life figured out. I'm, yeah, he's and, figuring it out. And actually, right. most coaches have coaches. Yes, we all do. I mean, Every, let's hope we well, all do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, it's it's... It's just part of the process. 
it's just being a step maybe further in the process but yeah no one has reached the the finishing line the finish line or whatever <laughs> i have a thought that makes my inside shake so every time my inside shake and these thoughts that i have i call them downloads and i i don't know where they come from i you know when i was a kid i used to think they came from the holy spirit i i it might be the holy spirit but i think once i name it i put it in my box and i finite mind can't understand an infinite possibility so i'll call it the holy spirit so people can mm -hmm. relate but i'm not talking about judeo-christian holy spirit when I have these downloads and they shake from the inside and I, and I like feel like I could laugh and cry at the same time, um, then that experience, a lot of times, I think that comes from something out, not outside of me, but a connection that I have with this, this realm that is, is connected to every other human being on the planet. And because of that experience that I have, I think that it's not that I'm, evolved in some way i'm we're all in the process of mm. awakening some of us are further in the process than others are but we're all in it like so it doesn't matter if, if you have that experience or you have something different as we begin to open up to new possibilities and we begin to heal uh you know ourselves by like like bringing back to the to the back to the infinite let's just call it the infinite as we bring ourselves back to the infinite we we're all in that process. Some people are further in front. And so it's good to have a mentor, teacher, coach who's further in the process than you are. Just like I have a mentor who's further in the process than I am. And my mentor has a mentor and my mentor has a mentor, a mentor. There are some people though, I think that come into this world who connected a very profound way to the infinite. And unfortunately we assassinate most of them. <laughs> I think of the ego, like I think that they don't fit in anymore. And so we can't, they can no longer be in this realm with us because mm. they're, it doesn't exist for them anymore. And in, mm. in our minds, it looks like death, but I don't know that that's really what it is. Martin Luther King is the one that first that came to me where I was like mm. listening to him. I like to listen to his, and you've heard me. I play it at times um, mm. during works. I do. I, his, where he gives himself his eulogy. And I still, to this day, like right now I have like goosebumps all over my, when I, when I just, when I think about it. Right. And I had this, I was talking to a friend and I was telling her, Fanny is her name, Fanny Perez. And I was telling her, I was like, what if he ascended and we saw it as a shot by, it was assassination. But what mm -hmm. if he actually ascended? He didn't need the body anymore. And I, I, I thought that when I was listening to his, his talking about the promised land, I'm not going to be there with you. Like I, I listened to, it was almost like he had a premonition of what was happening next. And he was sharing it with us that he could see the future that hadn't happened yet. And then once he got to that place, we couldn't exist anymore in this body or in this time as Martin Luther King, he, he ascended. Yeah. But our ego says he died or, I mean, I don't talk about this. His body died. His body, oh, the, yeah. the, the, the Christ, same thing, right? He, they, we talk about his ascension into heaven and he, you know, the body and all that stuff. I mean, I don't have any religious like leanings or anything like that. But when I think about the Christ, I think about like what happened and how if he no longer, if he was fully uh, like adjoined with the infinite, he no longer needed his body and he then ascends into, into heaven or whatever we are. Yeah, whatever. You know, right. Like, again, our mind can't understand those things. So I don't know if that's a truth or not. I just have noticed. It's, like it's a noticing that I have. And it came from someplace not of my mind. Now, I put words to it because mm -hmm. I can't speak. I speak brain to brain sometimes. But, <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, like, so I think that there's a lot of that out in the world that we're just, we don't speak about, you know, where people have a certain abilities and, and we, the unknown is so unknown that we, uh, we try to, we try to make it make sense in our brain. The moment we do, we collapse it and we, we can't convey it in a way that people would understand it. So I hope that made a little sense to you guys coming from yeah. my, my finite mind, trying to understand this infinite experience that I have, you know. <laughs> when you graduated, to go back to your life story, um, so you got your degree in psychology and sociology. Um, how did you go from there in terms of, okay, I've got the tools, uh, quote unquote, to help other people. Uh, what do I do now? Well, ironically, what I did was um, I, while I was in college, I got a job working, a part-time job working in an adolescent drug treatment center. So I literally worked at like the front line. Like I, wow. my job was to stand with like a clipboard and count the clients. That was my first job, you know, um, serve them food. Like I did, I did all of these like menial tasks so that I could be around people and um, just jumped in. I jumped in as much as I possibly could talking to them, listening to them, getting to know them, supporting them. And, and I got promoted very fast. So I like, like very fast within this company. And so by the time I graduated from the college I was in, um, uh, with my four-year degree, I was already grandfathered into some certifications with the states, like international uh, counseling, uh, substance abuse counseling. And because I was already grandfathered in, I had to take a test and I had to do some stuff, but I had all these hours that I had been working in the field that all worked towards this certification. Right. And the rest is like history. I just did that from, and I, every chance the training came along or an opportunity came along, I was a yes. So I had more little things behind my name <laughs> and I was like all right if, if, if something is available to me I'll just be a yes I mean I, I've done interventions I've done you know MAT which is medication assisted treatments clinical supervisions I mean I've trained other counselors I were in prevention programs nonprofits, uh, coalitions all kinds of the cool stuff mm -hmm. I just started being a yes to anything if it fit into my vision of what I wanted to create in the world, I was just a yes, yes, yes. And then about 2000 and I want to say 2013, 2014, my mom died. And um, there was a major shift in the collective of the substance abuse industry. So insurance care management changed. People could get insurance. There's insurance uh, treatment became big business. So you started seeing people like what you would see like in real estate when it started right before the bubble hit in 2008, where you see these guys, you know, driving Mercedes right. and, you know, mm. whatever. They started showing up in the treatment industry and then mm. exponentially young people started dying. Like I went the first 10 years with maybe five people dying. I spent my last 11 months, 18 clients died. And I just was like, this, these results are unacceptable to me. These, I, I no longer am going to put my name and my energy into something that's not working. And so I started looking for ways outside of that field to create what I wanted to create. And that's how I got, I got actually did the same training as you did. I, in uh, 2015, I did gratitude trainings, uh, the, the same three parts you did exactly. Yeah. And um, didn't love it. 
In fact, I was pretty sure I was never going to talk to anybody in that group again, and it was a cult, and I was, you know, very clear <laughs> that I did not like it, and I was not going to do it, but I graduated, and about a month later, I, I just had this moment where I was like, this could be a way to really help the maximum amount of people, mm. and and instead of trying to fix people as a problem, which is what treatment was for me, I identified a problem and came up with a plan to fix that problem. What if I looked at people as a possibility? Mm. And it just, I don't know, two months after I graduated, I was like, huh, people are not problems. They're possibilities. They don't need to be fixed. They need to be, uh, they need to be mentored or opened up to their possibilities. And how is the best way to possibly do that? And I started the process. I just started asking, I got into my, my part two trainer's back pocket, basically. Francine raised her name, just jumped in her back pocket, went everywhere she went. She was there. I was there <laughs> like three years. I followed her around. So that was really kind of how. That's a really in interesting concept. The yeah, people or possibilities, not problem. I feel I'm, proce I'm processing it at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> please, please. I, I think about addiction this way. If we stopped looking, I mean, I, I love this guy. He says, every, uh, we've been wrong about addiction. Like, like we, everything we know about addiction is wrong. And I, I agree. Like we have been addressing it. Like it's a bad thing that needs to be fixed versus a possibility for spiritual awakening. Mm. What if all diseases were a possibility for spiritual awakening? You talk about hitting rock bottom. What better way to hit rock bottom than disease? And if a disease is dis-ease, meaning like dis-ease, Louise mm -hmm. Hayes talks about this in her books. You know, resentment creates cancer. Um, you know, not speaking your voice creates throat problems. She connected emotions, un, un, uh, trapped emotions in the body. She, she addressed them as, as illness, catalyst for illness. Well, if I realize that addiction comes from an un, like a, a process in me from avoidance of my past or my future that hasn't happened, and I'm not being present to the moment, then that can wake me up to, well, what of all kinds of possibilities, which it did. Like in a mom, my moment of clarity was like, oh my gosh, there is a world out there that I'm not living in. I'm raising children in a world that I don't know anything about. So do you see how a disease can really open that up? Now, do we need disease to do that? Probably in the human body, just like we need to see people die to ascend, you know, like, because we're egoic. Yeah. It made me think of something you went through during the training. You, you shared that, well, I mean, so, something that you're teaching us about, whatever. Uh, that I really, really struggled with it for a while was be grateful for everything. I really simple, easy words. And I could not wrap my head around it. It's like, how can you be grateful for some crap that has been happening into your life? Like that really, really, really struggle. Like, I mean, like when I was doing the training, I mean, I, I, I did open up on about the miscarriages and the abortion that we had to go through and i was like how the fuck can i be grateful for that seriously like that doesn't make any sense at all and i understood it eventually um but it's still weird 
I, I get it. And no, but it's, well, I here's, it's here's, like, it's, this it's might the conversation between me and my ego. Well, uh, it probably. is, and this might support you. It's not a truth. It's not a truth. It's a powerful place to stand. Hmm. So a truth says it is, right? But a powerful place to stand says it's a possibility that, to yeah. be grateful for everything. And when I am, what am I producing in the world? When I'm not grateful for everything, what am I producing in the world? And that's, mm -hmm. the, that's, where I, that's what I love about the work that I do is there's no absolutes in it. There's powerful places to stand if they serve what you're up to. And then there's places that you won't stand because they don't serve you in the moment. Like, I don't know that coming off of a miscarriage that I would be grateful. It might, it, I, I've not had that experience, but I'm just saying, like, I don't know that I would experience gratitude right away. I think there's some steps in there that might happen. Yeah. And there could be a time where I'm like, I experienced that experience fully, completely express that experience to the point where I can see gratitude in it. But I don't know that that's something that should happen automatically for human beings. I mean, I, I would never lead in the chin in the boxing ring and tell someone who's just lost a baby that, oh, you should be grateful. And I hear people do it. People die and they're like, oh, be grateful they didn't suffer. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Don't, mm -hmm. like, don't say that to people. I mean, I know that's my judgment, my assessments of people. I, I, sometimes people don't have gratitude in that moment. Is it possible they could? But it's not for me to tell you to have gratitude. It's for you to say, what is going to serve this space? And I, I look at like women who've had miscarriages and, and families. And that's just because women don't just have them. Men have them too. Um, it's, I don't know what that process would look like, but I, they have them together, right? And I listen to how they comfort each other. And I'm grateful for that. Doesn't mean that I wish that upon anyone on this planet. But I am grateful that there are people who are available to people to be with them in such a dark and sad time. Yeah. It's. Yeah, I see. I, I see what you mean. Um, in a sense that. It's up to me, ultimately, to be grateful for that or not. And sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm not. Also, <laughs> it's it's not like like I said, like a fact. It doesn't have to define everything. Um, it's a powerful place to stand. I'm yeah. grateful for my childhood. I'm grateful every time I do yeah. a training. I'm grateful for my childhood yeah. because it gives me such great touchstone to help others, and I think it makes me an effective human being. Doesn't mean yeah. that if doesn't mean that I liked it. Doesn't mean mm. that I would wish it on a human being on this planet. No way. That's, that's it. That's, that's the thing that's we really like. We like, I'm grateful for it, but if I could go back and change it, I, I probably would. You know, I didn't wish this. I, 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 if I could, yeah, change the past, like, I don't want this to happen to me. Uh, but it did. I can't change the past. So. Well, there might be a place too where you would, because I actually think my childhood's a gift now. It's not, did not come easy. So at first it was a huge problem. Then it became a challenge to overcome. And then it became, it provided me opportunities. And now it's a gift. And I see mm. the gift that I've been given because of the outcomes that I have. There mm. could be a place in there where you began to see something as a gift. That doesn't mean that you would change the past. It just, for me, I wouldn't wish that on anyone in the future. Yeah. 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 But I would still go through everything I went through because I see, I see it made me who I am today and who am I am today serves people in a profound yeah. way. 
So I don't know if I changed that. If I could have everything I have right now without going through that, maybe, but I don't that I don't have that as a context or yeah, a possibility. Just, yeah. So I don't, you know, and you two, like think about as sad as it is and as heartbreaking to want to have children and, and not have it happen. Look at what you're creating in the world right now. Like this podcast is amazing. Mm-hmm. You, you never know what brought you to this. Some of it was your heartache oh, yeah. and your pain. Mm. Oh yeah. hundred percent. We would not be here talking if that would have not happened for sure. hundred percent. We would have never been in Miami, never meet all the ex- amazing people that we met. We would, I would have not quit my job to decide to go traveling for 18 months. Uh, it's, that's what's complicated for the brain to process. Cause <laughs> the finite mind cannot understand yeah. infinite possibilities. Yeah. So it will try to collapse it down. And, and, yeah. and I love human beings cause we have experiences and we get to experience them and, and not like every time we try to not have an experience, like we shut it down, it stays within you. It traps in in you. So part of the process of, of healing is, is releasing those trapped emotions so that we can, again, be present in the moment, this moment, and not through filtered through the past or projected a future that hasn't happened yet, but be in this moment with you right here and letting everything else, you know, like what's wrong in this moment? I, I constantly ask myself that because I still carry like a dark passenger. I like to call it my dark passenger. I love Dexter, by the way. I was going to say <laughs> Dexter. And what my dark passenger doesn't kill people yet. Um, but my dark, <laughs> like I have impending doom. I talked about the existential crisis. I'm sensitive to things that are happening in the world. And I get very like, I find myself feeling like an inside, like in here in my head, like this, like, oh, Oh, like it's hard to breathe feeling and it comes mm. in times like especially when the pandemic was new I had it almost all the time you know my my career was was gone in a day literally uh um I had enough money but I was seeing the collective of all of these people and the suffering and I was like I just don't know if I want to exist in this this lifetime anymore like you know ego go away let me leave you know and I and I had to stop and be like literally at the time I was living on the beach in South Florida and when other people couldn't go outside and do anything I could walk down to the beach and walk my dog on the ocean I had food delivered to my house I had air conditioning I had everything a human being could possibly need and I'm I had to like really check into that like that is what is actually happening in my world yes in Haiti there is hurricanes and and earthquakes and things that are happening that are heartbreaking but i have to click into what's happening in my little world right here for every once in a while and then i have to then get back to a grounded place and then bring it back out again okay so you know i stopped watching the news for a moment because i was like i just can't take in all of that right now and then once i started doing that i started becoming like i created frontline mind and body project which is where i giving these tools to frontline workers, they could have what's called mindful moments. I would do work with them to support them and staying grounded because I, I'm not a frontline worker. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not working in ERs. How can I be in maximum service to the people that are? Yeah. And Art of Recovery is, uh, you know, it's an, a program that I'm a part of I'm on the board of. It's a group of artists who help people find their way through art as a medium and create communities for artists in early recovery because a lot of people think that drugs and alcohol are their muse or they don't have an experience of art shows and 
things like that. So we s help them showcase their work and we provide oh, wow. pride groups to them. And, and we do, we just, you know, we raise money for human ser other human services and uh, organizations that feed homeless. And it's just, it's just a way And then once I stopped panicking over what was happening in the world, I could come back to the simplest things I could do and take action. I don't know if that's that dark passenger is ever going away. I'm aware of it now and it doesn't mm. run me that's all mm. that's all that's really happened and i think for most human beings that's um <laughs> might be the best that we can do <laughs> yeah is yeah. live with it rather than trying to control it put it on a leash or, or suppress it or whatever resist um, it yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah as well yeah it's like all right it's here uh okay and so what now what <laughs> you know there's still work to be done in the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> last yeah. last i checked <laughs> <laughs> we're not back in the garden of eden <laughs> no <laughs> so you it's really cool that you, you you started it's interesting also in terms of uh, purely business stuff you're doing kind of like usually people start broad and niche down into something like you you niche down at the beginning into helping people with addiction to recover and stuff like that. And then you thought, oh, actually, I could help more people. Uh, I, I, I can help everyone. So I'm going to expand my toolbox and coach, train anyone that is willing to be helped and to change. By, by I mean, people going to those trainings. Um, so yeah, you, you're really like, reaching out to the world and getting out there. By love that also you had the awareness and capacity and 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 also generosity to also go say okay the world is falling apart who needs my tools right now who should I focus on who need who need it the most and yeah there was all the first first responder and you didn't just think about it <laughs> you went for it you took action because that's it's one thing to have an idea and it's another thing to execute. We're really good human beings are having ideas, but executing is a whole other subject. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool that you're step-by-step step using all the tools that you have learned and you're still learning to navigate the world and adjust and adapt and go where, where you feel you're more needed at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny because Napoleon Hill in his book says that most ideas die at birth because we don't breathe life into them, which mm. is so true. Like I have thousands of ideas. Only a few actually ever make it into to the world, uh, come from my head into the reality of things. Uh, and recently I had such a shift too. So um, about two or three months ago, my husband is retiring. He's um, He turned 65. He's not retired yet, but he's in the process of retiring. And he got very like i think it was almost an existential crisis i keep saying that so i'm gonna just go with it that's the best way to describe it but he could not find a zest for life now i'm coaching tons of you know people on creating nonprofits and you know podcasts you name it like i'm coaching all these people to have these amazing lives and in my home somebody's dying on the vine literally like cannot find a reason to get up and, and live and it it made me i just step back and i was like what project or projects don't need me right now? 
so that I can focus my energy back on my family life because I had counterbalanced so far over here mm. during this time that I didn't even, I don't want to say I didn't notice, but I was unaware to the escalation of what was happening with him. And so I took pause and I looked and I asked myself, like, what's actually happening here? You know, and I, and I started, I sought a coach. I sat down and I said, you know, these are the things I'm thinking and seeing. And I really feel like there's this like juggling act that I'm doing. And I really want, like, my family is important and I want to choose them. And, um, you know, so I let some projects go and, and, and relinquish them or resigned from them and, and, and offered my, you know, warm handoff, but I'm leaving these projects so that, so they, because I believe that they're sustainable without me, which actually mm -hmm. every project's sustainable without you, just so you know. Even my, <laughs> even my family's sustainable without me. However, they're my priority. And so it really had me, re and, and from the outside world, you know, people can say, well, you know, you, as a trainer, you should be able to do it all. And it's like, well, yes, I can, like, it's possible to do it all, but that doesn't mean I choose that. And without shame or guilt or blame, it's like, I, I choose this right now. And so I focused a lot of my energy the last probably two and a half months on my household, my family, really getting clear. And, and about a, about three or four weeks ago, he woke up and said, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be alive. Like I, I'm experiencing like a, a joy again or, or, an, or like there's a reason I'm still here. And I don't understand that whole like retirement thing. I don't know. I don't have a context for it because I've never experienced it before. I'm mm -hmm. assuming that there's a lot of people who go through that crisis when they're like they're starting to leave the professional world and not really knowing what's next, that it gets scary. Um, but I, people, people like in from the outside might look at that and go, how can you help others when this is what's going on in your life? And the question is, is well, that kind of makes me perfect to help others <laughs> having experience. Yeah some of the darkest things a human being can experience, it makes it, it I, I can help others. Now, I would not, in the middle of it, take on people who are going through the same exact experience as me. I don't mm -hmm. think that would have been healthy for the people I coach. Mm -hmm. But I do see in the future supporting other people who have family members with mental illness or with, with, with depression and anxiety, helping them how to be a space to get their, to love their family regardless of what's showing up. I feel it's really, really hard. That's be a personal feeling to help your loved one the same way you would help a random person in a sense that I personally feel it's way easier to call someone else like on the bullshit or whatever than, you know, your wife, your parents, your mother, sister, brother, whatever it is. Because you don't want to hurt them because you care like on a special in a special way for them so sometimes it's really harder to coach help support them because sometimes some truth has to be told but it's hard to tell you know your wife something rather than just a random person now you know you're gonna hurt 100 but, but, but i don't but coach my husband good... <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's really interesting how yeah I definitely don't coach him. What I do, what I did was I requested that he see a doctor and I got coaching ah. for myself. And then I began to create myself okay. to be the person to support him and whatever he was going through. But I 100% agree. Like I can't imagine it always. In, I mean, 
I think it's hard and, and there's so much there's so much tension in a romantic relationship or children the same way my children I don't coach my children I support them the best way I can and I would definitely refer them to therapy before I would try to offer them any kind of therapeutic support if my children or you know even though I'm a professional I've been in, in the addiction field for 20 years even though that's my that's something I've been doing for a long time if one of them showed up and, and presented with addiction I would get professional help. Hmm. I would get professional help because I don't have the ability to separate myself or I don't want to. Let me say, I might have the ability, but I don't want to separate myself emotionally from my family. Hmm. Yeah. So I need a, a neutral, non-biased party to come in and give me a, a support in that. Hmm. Now, I wanted space and time to do that work with my husband and my, my family so that I wasn't distracted by business. If that make you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like that yeah. I wanted to be you know, could I have done it all? Yeah, but why would I choose that? I don't have to choose that that way. Life, life is such an interesting thing. Be in the dance. Be in the dance. It's not a race to the finish line. Yeah. It's a dance, you know, like, so have fun. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's, it's good to know also that even, yeah, that someone with as many tools that you have also, yeah, it's something that you keep separate and apart and actually makes sense yeah the few times i've yeah. tried to coach my husband he's like don't pull that training stuff on me <laughs> <laughs> i mean could you imagine if i talked to him the way i talked to you for the first 20 minutes of your training she, she tells, tells me don't gratitude me <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna stop gratituding me <laughs> for sure yeah oh man it's that they, so my one of my other mentors name is barry warren he's the part one trader i don't know if he was yours but he did the, yeah okay he, he did my part one he and says, ML. he says it's dangerous when people don't do the full journey because they begin to use the tools as a weapon because they try to mm. like their ego like turns it into a weapon they use on themselves and others he thinks that it, it's better off if you're not going to do the whole well that's not exactly how he says it but he wants people to do the full journey because his experience tells him that people if they don't have that breakthrough they think they had the breakthrough in part one and then they go out and try to be like many trainers with everybody in their life. <laughs> it, yeah. And again, creates separation. Mm. What's your big vision, your end goal, if you have one? Mm. Well, I, my, uh, my vision for the world is a, a world that's harmonious. And I have a few things that, that line up with that. And um, one of the main things that, I love trainings, I love coaching, and a lot of the reason I do it is because I want to create a world. I have a daughter with disabilities. I think I shared that in my, my part too. So I have a daughter with disabilities, intellectual disabilities, and I would imagine a world where she could live in a community for her entire life without expectations. So, you know, we create these great opportunities for people, but we have expectations on them to be normal and to create like mm -hmm. a normal. She wants to be a mother. She, and so a lot of people are like, well, she can't be a mother. She's mentally only 13 years old. I'm like, well, why can't she? There's plenty of women out there with full IQs that shouldn't be mothers. Like that's <laughs> not, IQ is not a, not a determination of good motherhood, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, like I wanted like my goal, end goal in this lifetime, I'm committed to creating communities for people with disabilities that they can live fully self-expressed. So, you know, that's a mechanism in there. So it's not exactly vision, but it supports me. So like when I'm like, I don't want to do this training or I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. I'm like, all right, I don't have a community for people with disabilities to live fully self-expressed yet. Get up. 
<laughs> get up and do your next, like do the next thing you need to do. So right now, my short-term goal is to fund a, non, a couple of nonprofits I'm working with to get them fully funded. One of them, Frontline Mind and Body Project. What I did with these people want to replicate so they, so people who work on the front line can then do it with their coworkers. And so I, mm. someone like me wouldn't oh. even come in. A doctor would work with a doctor, a nurse with a nurse, a firefighter with a firefighter, police officer with a police officer, spouse with spouse of a frontline worker. So they all have the same tools I do, and they work with people. And so, mm -hmm. because it creates a great community. And then the other one is Art of Recovery, where you know people who artists who are in, in it in recovery work with other artists in early recovery. So I want to get them fully funded and then create a space for that next next community that I want to create. So these have been I don't want to say they're practice communities because they're obviously I'm passionate about them, yeah. um, and I'm learning so much about them so that I can create the community that is going to be my legacy. Mm. It's interesting because I'm trying to, my brain went on to like, how do you operate that? Because I feel... <laughs> if you figure it out, will you let me know? <laughs> no, my, 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 my thoughts were, it's interesting because I feel to create a community that, because ultimately, basically, you should be doing work with everyone else apart from disabled people because the problem or not the people that have the disabilities the problem is me and people like me and stuff like that like i don't know normal people but i don't like to use this word i don't know how to uh, non-divergent non <laughs> yeah and like that we are not as a society uh making anything to help people with disability or people that are slightly different than the norm, than what kind of, what we should all be doing. Uh, yeah, like that's a lot of coaching that you have to do. That's to... a lot of coaching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you see why I get up and go to training. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, gotta go to the training so people under, I mean, I had a friend recently send me an article and was like, well, you know, is it fair for, you know, people to only hire certain people like so and they went through this whole thing and I understood what they were saying because what they I think what they were what he was conveying to me was like is it okay for a woman to only hire women or a person of color to only hire people of color and it was like that it, it was like I feel like this is separation and I said I understand I understand what you're saying and let me explain to you the way I have it goodwill hires people with disabilities are you saying that people with disabilities shouldn't be hired be the only people hired in an organization created for people with disabilities and he's like, thank you. <laughs> like he just needed to see it from another perspective. And I don't mean that to be like, I, yes, of course, we're all one humankind. We are. And if we make the measuring stick, white Anglo-Saxon man with an above average IQ is the only one who succeeds. Mm. Are we really one humankind? Are we white? We all got to be white Anglo-Saxon males uh, with an IQ above, you know, 100. Yeah. So I, you know, and I, and I, again, I don't, I, I love mankind and humans and all that stuff. I think it's fascinating. And I think there, that, that people with disabilities teach us about authenticity, love, kindness, generosity in ways that no other segment of our population does. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I don't want a world without them. And in this world, I want them to be treated 
like human beings. Like every every right that any other human being has on the planet. You'd be surprised how many people are like, oh, you're not going to have her sterilized? Why would I have her sterilized? Like, that's so weird. Why, why would I do that? Like, you know? Or, or you know, control, like, are you going to be... Are, people really said that to you? Oh, for sure have asked. People have told me they're sorry. I'm so sorry about your daughter. I'm like, what are you sorry about? Like, I'm sorry. You know, there's an old saying, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. God thinks I'm a mm. badass. Like, <laughs> clearly, he thinks I'm a badass. He probably thinks that you are not that cool. He gave you a bunch of regular average IQ breeders, <laughs> you know, like... Because I have a son who's gay as well, so like you know, it's the joke is you know like you know you have a, I have a son who's gay and a daughter with disabilities. I have a kid with an above average IQ who you know is probably the hardest one to raise. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones were simple. He was complex and lots of you know stuff. Uh, but the point I say to that is I think that people feel sorry for mm. a parent. Like oh, it's like a sad thing. It's not a sad thing. It's amazing. It's a it's talk about that gift, right? Like when she was first diagnosed, it was a problem. Yeah. And I had a lot of resistance to it. I was felt sorry for myself. I felt victim to it. Then it became a challenge that I thought I was going to fix. I'm going to fix her. Mm -hmm. She's going to be great. And then I started seeing all of these opportunities for authenticity, love, connection, joy. And today, probably one of the biggest gifts God has given me. And I use God loosely, like universal, you know. Yeah. Like it is a gift that has been given to me. And it, again, made me the human being I am today, which is pretty cool. And she's cool. <laughs> she just started college. They have a, an, an, an inclusion community at the college close to us. FAU has a great inclusion program. So kids with disabilities go there and, and, and are included into that. They have their own self-contained classrooms and they have these inclusion classrooms. They were with other kids and it's mm. at the university. So she has a university experience. I didn't know that was even a possibility when she was first diagnosed. Most people don't know that. So, yeah. you know, if I if I had been in resistance to everything that she was, I don't know that that possibility would have been in my consciousness. I wouldn't have seen it. It would have been there, but I wouldn't have seen it. I'd have right. thought, mm -hmm. well, her, she's just going to live, you know. I'm just, just going to have to take care of her entire life yeah. and yeah. I'm going to have to yeah. be a nurse. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, which people believe that. People yeah. believe that, you know, you are left with this lifelong experience of taking care of someone and they don't do anything and they're a burden on society. And it's, you know, people believe that, but that's not, it's not true. No. It's not true for me. Yeah. It's all about perspective and being willing to see and accept that there is another way. Because there's very often there is another way for everything. <laughs> I think there's always a possibility. Yeah. 100% of the time. We may choose from what we recognize and limit ourselves, but there's infinite amount of possibilities available at any given time. We just can't see them. Or we don't want to see them. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are unable to see them with our where we're at. We can yeah. only see what we can see. Yeah. Thank you so much, me. That was such a cool conversation, personally. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I've said that many times. I would do this podcast just for myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I loved it. It was great. <laughs> you know, like, I, I really love like digging into understanding 
why and how you became the person you are today and, and you know seeing another side of you as well after you know being on the coach like thing side like interesting to have another perspective and understanding why and, she was horrible too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understood this right now I, I, I don't hold a grudge or anything on that <laughs> Good, glad to hear. It. No, that's okay. <laughs> no, if anything, I told you at the beginning, I'm, I'm grateful. So I'm good with that. <laughs> grateful for everything, including people yelling and screaming at me. <laughs> yeah. It actually works for me. I'm aware of that. I'm, I don't know. I'm weird for that. So that's fine. <laughs> you must, and, I, and you said it, like challenge works well for you. You yeah. might be someone who easily challenged. Some people like to be cheered. Some people like to be challenged. It's, just, it's a personality preference. It doesn't mean anything else wouldn't work. But I'm so grateful for you guys inviting me and asking me. It's been an amazing conversation. I love I love talking to previous students and seeing what they're up to. <laughs> like that is one of the best parts about the world that I have created in my life is that I hear people's vision. And what pandemic did was give me opportunity to stay in the vision with people in ways I had not ever thought of before because mm -hmm other things were eliminated from my life yeah. so it's been really cool so you guys have been a part of that and rosie when the trainings are available to you anytime she's like <laughs> her face was great if you guys could <laughs> her eyes she was like Ugh. it sounds terrifying <laughs> i like In to be so challenged she doesn't no. she hates it <laughs> you make the training the beauty of the trainings is you make them the what works for you whatever mm. works for you you create it so if you get challenged, it's because that will work for you. If you, and I'm not saying someone won't challenge you. What I'm saying is if you, you, you're, the way we have it, you are actually authoring, meaning you're the writer, the creator, the origin of what's happening in the room to you. Mm -hmm. So if someone's coming at you, going in on you, it's because you authored them to do that. It's very empowering, mm -hmm. actually. It doesn't <laughs> sound like it. It sounds kind of crazy, but in the in it, you don't even realize it's happening. You're like, wow, this is crazy. You'll start hearing people's, you'll start thinking something, and then it'll come out of somebody's mouth. That's the thing that's got me sold on it. I was like, I just thought that. It came out of that guy's mouth over there. How did that even happen? It was interesting because Jeremy was like, begging me to do it he was like if you do it you'll come out like an absolute superstar you'll be the like most powerful woman in the entire world and I was like I don't want to be the most powerful woman in the entire world I'm fine just being me here's the thing you already are the most powerful woman yeah. in the world the trainings are only going to expose it you're already you already exist all those things in you already exist but it's yeah. I think it's great here's the thing about it when I had my family do it I don't like everyone in my family has gone through at least the advanced or the what we call the part two um, and some of them have completed all three parts and every person that I enrolled into it, it was because I loved them mm. and I wanted what was right for them. It was never because they needed to be fixed. Mm. So, you know, I hope that supports you guys. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way it's, that's the way we teach it. doesn't mean that's what people do, but that's what we want for people to enroll them into it so that they can see them, their best version of themselves, not because there's anything wrong with you. Mm. You kept telling me that, but I didn't believe it. <laughs> now you've heard it from a trainer, so believe it. It's true. It's the one truth. It's the one truth that we operate from. It's not really a truth, but we operate from that everyone is already whole, perfect, and complete. Yeah. Everyone, you come out of the factory that way. Yeah, I love this image that you used during the training. That really also changed my perspective on how I see people and how I, you know, I mean in a certain degree we all judge people or have an opinion about people and that really 
shifted my perspective on some people the, the like hurt people hurt people uh people are born good and shit happen in their life and they have layers of crap on them that you know uh, but yeah they have a good heart it's just they went through some things and 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 they haven't done the work to peel it off or whatever um, that's with my brother one of the things i always had a hard time understanding why he didn't have the same level of conscious like like he didn't see things the way i saw them or way most thank god most human beings on the planet don't see things the way my brother saw them mm. but when i look back and i remember in my listening to my mom talk about men in general and and specifically my brother and the way she brought men in and out of our lives and all the things that happened to him as a little boy all of a sudden things started making sense to me that he operated from an operating system that was mm -hmm. severely flawed based on my mother's flawed operating system mm -hmm. based on her father's flawed operating system based on his father's flawed operating system. you see how like generationally mm -hmm. this flawed operating system kept being downloaded into people and there was never the opportunity never revealed itself to them in a way they could get it so that they could say like, oh, I don't want to operate from that operating system. That iOS doesn't work or that AOS doesn't work anymore. I want to upload a new one. They had mm -hmm. so many things running in the background they were unaware of. Mm -hmm. And once I got that, I my resentments went away. I was like, oh, you know what? Mm -hmm. He was just operating from a place. Now, didn't mean I would invite him over to dinner if he was still alive. I would probably not have him have anything to do with my children. However, I can my heart forgive and love as before and see the beauty of like, I look at pictures of when he was a baby, you know, and he was this beautiful, like beautiful white haired baby, you know, and he was mm. just so like these big saucer blue eyes and he had this cute little smile and he was tiny, you know, and I'm like that, that little being was perfect. Mm -hmm. And then something happened and, and and created a disruption in his operating system so that he didn't like women specifically. He didn't, mm -hmm. you know, most of his crimes were against women uh, or women were involved in the crimes he committed. And so mm -hmm. I think, man, what, what, what happened there? You know, it doesn't mean, like I said, that I, if he was alive, I don't know that I would invite him around my children or my family or anything like that, but can I still love from my heart deeply yeah. Yeah. and know that he was operating from a system that was, it's not conducive to family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about when, when you realize that you have compassion Lots towards of people rather, rather than being, you know, this person is just a dick or whatever, like rather than being like basic judgmental, like whatever. Like it's, yeah, I, it's not like feeling sorry for them, but feeling, uh, yeah, just something must have happened well compassion is a great word i can have great compassion for someone and not understand a lick of what they did or why they did it or any of that kind of <laughs> stuff and not feel sorry for them and have compassion mm -hmm. for their experience in their life i mean it's sad really when you think about it he had a child who my nephew committed suicide 20 years later after my brother did so like generationally like that that operating system just kept being pushed through the the yeah. you know and i look at that and i'm like that young man never got an opportunity to even meet his father nor have a father and then it was passed on mm -hmm. and so you know there's a lot of sadness in that
Now that we've ended on a very sad note. It's <laughs> 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 so always hard to make a transition after things like that. <laughs> Let's just say there's an infinite possibilities available for compassion at any given time, no matter what's happening. <laughs> yeah. I've, I have one last question for you. Uh, it's a question we ask every guest. If you could have a conversation with anyone dead or alive, that in your eyes is a fascinating, interesting person or has been, who would you pick and why? Can be anyone who ever existed on earth. Mm. So two people always come to mind in this conversation. One is obviously the Christ, like Jesus Christ. I, and and I, I think he existed in this lifetime based on there's evidence that he existed. Who he was, I have no idea. Him and Martin Luther King. Always Martin Luther mm. King's always on my list because I I just I want to hear it like I want to ask questions of him. What would you ask him? Like what? one question, like I, I would I would ask him what his experience is, where that where all of his where his uh, where his speeches come from, like how did mm. like I would love to know the process that because I, I believe they're probably I think that they were downloaded based upon I don't mm. like yes they come from him, but he's the vessel of them. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for him to try to put to words what that experience was. Um, not that it would change anything, but it'd be fascinating to hear from him. Like, you know, what does it look like when you're creating a speech or when you're going to mm -hmm. motivate people? Like, do you know what you're saying or does it just come out of your mouth? Like, you know, I'm curious. I don't think we had the sensor yet. No. Surprisingly. Yeah. In a sense, because <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it makes me think of, I, I would love to ask Nelson Mandela how he found the love, courage, whatever adjective you want to forgive and, and, you know, like move on from this place of love. Like that blows my mind. Yes. How, how, how after everything he and his community have, have been through, how he was like, no, we are not going to be violent. We, we are going to fix this problem with love and compassion and, and, and just being nice human beings. Like, how do you find that in yourself to do that on such a massive problem thing? Like that, Agreed. I would love to d dig on that with him. <laughs> I'm always fascinated like him and so many people who have stood up for something and not trampled on the liberties of others to get what they wanted yeah. yeah because that is to me inspiring and and that's what i want to be in the world and i fall short and so i'm i'm very interested in how mm. that happens or what happens within them so that that's what they put out and and publish in the world yeah i have just been so mesmerized this whole conversation <laughs> just listening to you two talking i've just been like in awe the whole time. So I'm sorry I've not spoken much, but I absolutely loved it. Good, good. I'm glad. I'm so glad. I'm so There's been so many moments where I've just been like, hmm, okay. Yeah. What about that? Like, it's just been so interesting. The whole, yeah. I hope everybody else listening has enjoyed it as well. So I'm sorry I've not spoken. I am still here. I'm still alive. But it's just been, I've just really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for talking with us and for taking the time out of your day to talk to us and, yeah, share your story and share your experiences and... It's just been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rosie. It was a pleasure to meet you. And it was so good to see you again. 
so good to see you again. <laughs> if people want to reach out, be coached, if they just have a question, uh, what is the best way to reach out and get in touch? Probably right now, I have a website. You can it'll send me an email at uh, at my Millicent user. So uh, and is the easiest way to reach me or on Facebook. I have Millicent okay. user is my professional page. You can reach me there. Um, that's, I don't have any, like pr I have two projects that are frontline in art of recovery, but I don't have any current things. Oh, that isn't necessarily true. So if people wanted to do the trainings virtually that we talked about when the pandemic mm -hmm. hit, we created them virtually through a company called healing angels. They have redesigned trainings. We redesigned them so that they could be online. So, uh, you could also reach out that way and, and go through the same thing that you went through. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty easy to find, but thank you for asking. <laughs> I'll make sure to link everything in the show notes. So people just have to click and Great. they can find you really easily. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much once again and thank you for everybody listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye.